great to have you back on the Trojans Talk podcast. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com, and I am joined today by my familiar co-host of four years now, Max Brown, the former USC quarterback and our Trojansports.com analyst. Analyst being the keyword because today the show is just me and Max like the old days, and it is a lot of analysis. And We lean heavily on Max's analysis to break down all things USC football and especially this pivotal much anticipated matchup this weekend as 3 and 0 USC travels to 3 and 0 Oregon State for another big Pac-12 game. So, as we'll do all season, I'll just kind of let Max Cook, as they say, on the uh, opponent breakdown and really give us the overview of Oregon State and what to expect, what USC is up against and how those teams match up. But before that, we went through the 45-17 win over Fresno State and covered all the key storylines that came out of that game that we discussed this week, and uh, including my favorite new segment that we'll do all year, which is Max Brown's favorite Lincoln-Riley play call from the week, where he just kind of goes deep into a play, a formation, why it worked, what else it could have done, et cetera, et cetera. I cleared the lane this week and said, Max, it's, it's all yours. Take it to the hoop, and he did, and it was good stuff. So nothing more to palaver about at the top of the show. It is time to get into the podcast. Okay, back into the show as he is every week, the former quarterback and our Trojansports.com analyst going on four seasons now, Max Brown. Max, how are you? We're 3-0, baby. Doing well, doing well. It's it's getting fun. It's getting interesting. I'm pulling in the campus and having having the camp security who gives us our parking passes want to talk USC football for ten minutes before I go to practice and I'm talking about going undefeated and been the case in years past. Uh, the conversations had kind of died off. I'm sure I'm sure people try to ask you for the inside scoop and you know what's what's happening and. It's got to be uh, it's got to be a weight off your shoulders not having to talk about a coach getting fired and being on the hot seat and say you're talking about a top ten national ranked football team. Man, you, you said it. That that is exactly the situation, and it is a much better feeling. Every day going to practice is more fun. There's just so many great storylines to cover, and we'll hit a few of the individual storylines later. But obviously, we're gonna first break down the win from Saturday, 45-17 over Fresno State. Another offensive explosion, 517 yards. 233 of those rushing, which we'll get into. I like to start general and then get more specific. Max, what was just your your overall big picture takeaway as you finished watching that game? Big picture takeaway is, you know, it was a little bit harder to pull some of the storylines out of this week because I'm getting, I'm getting used to this offensive performance. You know, I'm getting used to guys being explosive. I'm getting used to the defense being active. I'm getting used to you know, always being positive on the turnover margin and whatnot. And so in years past, we've had no shortage of, you know, very drama-filled storylines and easy things to complain about and whatnot. And this year, it's, it's harder to harder to dig those up. But I think through three games, um, you know, I knew the offense was going to be really good. I didn't think they'd be at this level. But the defense, um, to me, I've been impressed. Through three games, the activity – Obviously, the, the first two weeks, the ability to uh, create turnovers, and I know you got you got the, the, the one on Hayner last week as well. But uh, you know, really like the defense. I think they're maximizing what they're able to do there. And I mean, you listen. 
to, to Alex Grinch and you know even him he's saying you know there's a long ways to go we have a lot we a lot we can get better at and I think this week should be a good test for him but big picture I think they're on the right the right uh, right path and it's you know it's refreshing to talk with Lincoln Riley on Monday night and not have it be like oh wow this is a great win or oh wow this was a huge you know huge uh, huge statement for us it's just nope this is business as usual there we're supposed to be three and oh it's not like you know the uh, it's unexpected to be number seven in the country. I think the overall temperament around the program is awesome to see as well, and feels like we're getting back the ways that I know uh, our listeners want us to be at. Yeah, number seven in the country, and it's starting to sink in, and it's starting to sink in just how fast he did this. I know we talked about that last time. I won't belabor that point, but it is still something I marvel at each week that we're just already to this point three games in uh he's he's got this thing rolling the defense at least has an identity which you couldn't say last year some people may not like the identity of the the bend but don't break and rely on turnovers and sacks but they have an identity we'll get more into that but let's start with the offense and let's start with the run game like i said 233 yards and that's after taking out the sack yardage uh, that Caleb lost. That's just the way that college football computes their stats. I think it's kind of silly. So it was an even more impressive rushing performance than the stats indicate. Travis Dye and Austin Jones both go over 100 yards, both score a touchdown, and both average more than nine yards per carry, which is the crazy stat to me. Max, why is this run game so successful? Is it the blocking? Is it the scheme? What's kind of the pie chart of, of reasons for why we're here i think a big chunk of that pie is the offensive line i mean don't get me wrong i think the scheme and you know the idea that the the pass game has to be your first area of concern as a defense like you don't have the luxury of being like oh wow we can you know jam the box and force our force the quarterback to be us no your number one concern on a monday morning meeting when you're playing usc is how are we going to stop Caleb Williams in this passing attack. And so, obviously, the running game reaps the benefits of that. But this offensive line, man, there's a lot of viewers. And if you're listening to this, you are listeners, I should say. Listeners, if you're listening to this, you know if you were critical the past couple of years of the offensive line. And, sure, coaching might be improved. But a lot of these guys, man, they're, they're familiar faces, especially on the inside of this offensive line. And I think in many respects they were doing this in years past. But it was just the, the pressure was so much on the run game, and it was much more predictable, and it was much uh, – it was it, the offense had a harder time keeping the defense off balance. And so all those factors are kind of all lining up now, and you're able to put a lot of pressure on the defense. So half is scheme with both components being the passing game and just overall run scheme metrics. Yep. And then I'll say the, the remaining half that's left, I'll say – I go – a fourth offense line, fourth running back. I'll make it easy. I don't need to go whole uh, whole mathematician on you. But, yeah, I think all the pieces are rolling together. But uh, it starts with the pass game. Uh, that's opening everything up. That's going to be a very easy pie chart for me to draw. So I appreciate that. I know. I was trying to, you know, I got two-thirds of a half. So that's whatever it is. Who knows? It's been, been a long time since I had – High school, whatever. Indeed. I think we got the point, though. But uh, going back to that scheme, and and it's a good point, Like even with the veterans they have and the experience they have, I think we all know that if the old staff was in place, it wouldn't be doing this. And for the reasons you mentioned, that you know, just the fact that this offense can do so many things and 
and the effect the pass game has on everything. But with the run scheme specifically, is there anything that stands out to you about the way that Lincoln is designing the run plays that is just different or that catches your eye as a quarterback? It's what we talked about offseason a little bit in terms of that guard tackle uh, GT counter um, scheme where you're blocking back with the front side of the offensive line and then pulling two backside or one backside offensive lineman and then one backside um, either tackle or tight end. That's what Lincoln Rowley, you know, made his name with a few years ago. It, it's become more of a melting pot over the years, but that Travis Dye, I believe it's a touchdown run um, in the red zone. That was that concept. And to me, what just sticks out is, you know, in years past, it felt like when you were watching USC, it was, hey, we call a pass play and we call a run play. We call a pass and then we call a run. And it was like, all right, we're taking turns, right? And we, I, as I said it out loud, I can just hear Clay Helton in my head say, got to be balanced, got to be 50-50. <laughs> like with this offense, it's much more, it's, it's much more synchronized, right? It doesn't, it feels like, when you watch that run play, oh, get ready defense, there could be an RPO off that run play. There could be a, a play-action shot call with Jordan Edison screaming down the middle of the field. There could be, you know, a bubble screen out wide to Mario Williams all off that one same run play, and you don't know what to expect as a, as a defense. That's the sign of a great play caller when they all mesh together and all the plays have a rhythm, have a theme, have a, a grouping to them, and that's what I feel when I watch this run game. Yeah, we, we talked to Tra- Travis Dye about that 25-yard touchdown, and he did say it was it was the GT whatever play. He referenced that specifically, so you're, you're right there. I want to talk about that run. That was obviously, I think, the, the highlight of the game just in terms of uh, entertainment value as he's just weaving through the defense and made four or five guys miss, depending on how you count it. And but like it wasn't it wasn't like a Relique Brown blazing speed making guys miss. It was just he just was wiggling through and, and turning and getting downfield. Who does Travis Dye remind you of? Is there anyone that, that he makes you think of when you watch his style? Travis Dye reminds me of – he reminds me of Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. Sure. I'll give, uh, I'll give Travis Dye 26, the comparison to 24, and for a few reasons. One, he's always falling forward which is, you know, a huge advantage when you talk about a running back and you get hit at one, even if you fall forward to three, that's second and seven rather than second and nine. That matters, especially on third down. The the playbook at third and four, I guess third and four and five versus third and seven, it's a different different section of the playbook. So that's that's impactful. The second is his ability to uh, be involved in the pass game. And I think that's maybe where the Marshawn Lynch comp comes front of mind because – no one's calling Marshawn Lynch a scat back by any means, and no one's, I think, going right home saying, oh, Marshawn has unreal hands. But when you really watch the film, you're like, wait, this guy could really get it done in the backfield, and he's really put a lot of pressure on linebackers. And they, you know, they really got to be wary when, when, when 26 is out there having to do a check down. So that, that's the second part. Um, and then the third part, I think his first move, right, when you get him the rock, and he has to make that first cut and be decisive with the hole that he's hitting. He's very good at that. It reminds me of Marshawn, where there's no it's – that, it's that weird combination where, okay, he's patient when he has to be, but when he decides to make a move, foot's in the ground and he's up. And you're not wasting a lot of movement. You're not saying, oh, that guy's the quickest dude in the world. But the quickness that he does have, he utilizes it. He's decisive. And 
just reminds me of a uh, you know NFL bat back there. Yeah, I didn't watch him much uh, at Oregon. Just you know, when obviously USC played them and uh, a game here or there. So when he transferred in, all I saw was the numbers. And I'll admit, a part of me just thought, well, they've had a really good offensive line, and they didn't have a lot otherwise on offense, and they just kind of fed him. So maybe it was just a product of volume and and the system. Uh, definitely not. Uh, he's quickly become one of my favorite players to watch on this team. It's, you know, it's probably Jordan Addison, number one, and then Travis Dye, number two. He, he just seems to get the absolute most out of his abilities. We've talked about the blocking, uh, everything, but just uh, a, rel- a, a relentlessness in, in all facets is kind of how I would describe him. And to me, I think he hasn't even tapped in, or USC fans have not been exposed to how gritty he can be. He can be. Like, if we get in a game where, you know, for whatever reason, the passing game's not working, and you have to run the rock with, with Die, and it has to be an ugly game, and he's really having to fight for every yard inside the inside the tackle box, he can do that. He was forced to do that at Oregon where, you know, in that, uh, in that Herbert offense, I know Herbert was his quarterback, but, man, they really leaned on that run game, and he could pound you, pound you, pound you, and then, you know, second half really, really break through, and he has no problem when that game gets ugly, and it's funny because I don't think it'll ever have to get to that point. It'd be funny asking Travis, too. I wonder if the workload just on his body – has been noticeably easier this year than uh, sure. any other year previously in his career because of that. He really had that role where, hey, we're bringing in uh, 26 at Oregon to really, you know, pound the defense. Yeah, he's getting much less volume, but uh, still plenty of big numbers. Die ranks seventh in the country in yards per carry at 7.57 for the season now. Austin Jones actually averages 8.2, but he only has 24 carries, so I guess – doesn't qualify for the NCAA's uh, official stat rankings there. We're, we're three games in now, so th- those are decent sample sizes, and that's what they're doing. It's really impressive. But just imagine, let's talk about Austin Jones for a second. You're Austin Jones. You averaged like 3.2 yards a carry last year at Stanford, just running into a wall every play. I just, I mean, we've asked him about it, but I I would love his just true, his true sentiments about it what a relief it is to be in this offense versus what he was playing in before. And, I mean, that question probably applies to, you know, everyone. True. <laughs> Even at Caleb Williams, you know, like what, what's it like having these receivers out wide? I would ask the same question. I would actually love to ask this question to to Brett Elon or Voris. Like, Andrew Voris has seen a lot, and he's played a lot of positions on the offensive line. Like, I imagine for those guys – they can see it in the defensive line's face. Like, oh, crap, there is nothing that we can do. They can see it in the linebacker's face when guys are just exhausted. I have to imagine that their jobs are much easier. Actually, I don't want to discredit what they're doing. I, I imagine their jobs are much lighter <laughs> as a result of uh, just the free flow and ability of this offense and all the pieces working together. Well, just more enjoyable, if nothing else. I mean, as such a grueling position, and when you're doing it, for a losing cause week after week after week, like last year, I can't imagine the mounting toll that takes. You get to the third quarter and and you've run into somebody forty times already. Where's that motivation level when you're when you're down twenty five points for the third week in a row? Uh, versus now when when you're really playing for something and you're you're the number seventeen in the country. I tried to ask Andrew Voorhees 
a variation of that question last week, and and he definitely uh, avoided answering it in the way I wanted him to. He's a pro, so yeah. no surprise there. Yeah, so I, I, the the run game really impressive, and just remember how it wasn't all that long ago that we were lamenting every week why can't this team run the ball, and it got a little better last year, but but still this is this is a different deal. We'll get to Caleb Williams and the rest of the offense, but. I want to go to our favorite segment, our, our, my favorite segment, a new segment that we're doing every week, which is Max's favorite Lincoln Riley play call. And I chimed in last week with one, too. I don't really have a great answer, so this is going to be a, a all Max's segment, and we'll just let him cook with it, as they say. Max, what was your favorite Riley play call from Saturday? Chef Brown, baby. Let, uh, <laughs> let me cook. I guess it's not Chef Brown. It's Chef Williams back there. Caleb Williams obviously falling out. Uh, my favorite play from his – I'll be breaking it down this week on Pac-12 Network, too. It'll be on my Twitter, so check out the clip there. And it stuck out because you could have scored one of three ways on the same exact play call. It was the one that Caleb Williams ran in for a touchdown from about 10 yards out. Yep. When you go back and watch that film, the first component of that is it's an outside zone play to the left. I believe Austin Jones was the back. You had Brennan Rice to the left. He's cracking down, or cracks technically illegal. He's blocking down on the safety if that ball's handed off i think austin jones gets the edge and that's a touchdown so that's the first area it didn't even you, you don't even get to that because Caleb williams pulled the ball but that's the first area that they can beat you and when he did pull the ball to me it's hard to tell whether or not lincoln riley called this as a design quarterback run or if caleb was truly reading that defensive end because the way the defensive end played it, he could have done either way, hand the ball off or pull it. He decides to pull it. At that point, his read is now the outside linebacker um, to that side that was standing up on the line of scrimmage. The way the play is designed, that defender's in a, for, uh, he's put in a bind. He has to make a business decision. Does he stick with Caleb Williams and, and play run, or does he uh, buzz out into the flat and guard Lake McCree? He gets caught in between in the gray area. He doesn't really guard like McCree, and he doesn't set the edge on Caleb Williams. You can tell that he's thinking so much, right? Imagine being that that outside linebacker, defensive end, uh, standing up on the line of scrimmage. Your first thinking run, trying to sink down with Austin Jones. Then the ball's pulled, and you're like, oh, crap, I'm in space. What do I do here? I got all these playmakers around me. It's kind of stuck in mud a little bit. Caleb Williams decides to pull it down, runs in for a touchdown, makes it look easy. That's, I guess, the second way that Caleb uh, could beat you is through the, uh, with his legs running to the end zone. The third way is if you go back and look at that, Lake McCree is open into the flat. If you just, you know, pitch it out there, similar to what they uh, what they did versus Stanford, different action, but similar end result, especially down by the goal line. He catches that ball, and I think he gets the front pylon. All, all by the while, you, if you watch that play in the slot to that side, you have little Mario Williams blocking like no one's business um great great job always blocking i asked him about that last week he said that's a big uh, point of emphasis there and uh you know that might be a concern given how small he is in the slot but no he dominates that linebacker opening up the running lane for caleb williams and should have lake mccree caught the ball he's there to block as well so the little things that you know mario williams is never going to get love on that play because you know it's it's uh, it's Caleb's show, or it's the run game show, but that effort shows you the type of buy-in the players have. So, love the play because it shows Lincoln Riley's just brilliance as a play caller. I think on that one simple call, 
you can you could have scored in three different ways. It wouldn't be a surprise if USC goes back to it. Excellent answer. That was the one I was going to choose, but I didn't know how to break it down like that. I just remember how how big that lane seemed for Caleb, and I thought this has to be the product of the design for him to have that much room to run with. There, you just explained it for us. On two is now defensively when you like you have to game plan for that. So keep in mind as a listener, now Oregon State. And uh, and Trent Bray, their defensive coordinator, now has to carve out ten whole minutes in precious practice time to defend against. Hey guys, when you have quarterback read option with the receiver into the flat, here are all the looks they could do it out of, and here's who goes where. Here's your responsibility. So you have to rep that. And oh by the way, oh by the way, Lincoln Riley, he can he can fake that action, and then now have Mario Williams like fake block and then run down the field. You can have Brendan Rice on the left-hand side do something similar where you fake the run play, Caleb rolls out to his right, and you have a backside post. There's so many different things that you can do, and just by putting it on film, you know, you force defensive coordinators to prep for you, and it's, it's just hard to do. Yeah, that's, that's another great point. Going back to Mario Williams and the blocking, I, I have tried to give him credit all season. In fact, I think I tweeted out – I know I tweeted out during the game. It was probably after that play that he was uh, rivaling Travis Dye as, as the, the best blocker on this team among the skill position guys. Uh, but it, like you said, it's total buy-in across the board. Today at practice, we're rec- recording on Tuesday, so Tuesday morning at practice, Riley was asked about Malcolm Epps. And it's like the same story with every guy. He said, well, you know, we told Malcolm, if you want to catch passes like you, like you did uh, Saturday, it's got to start with being physical at all times and, and showing us you can, you, can, you can block and be a physical presence. And that's just the prerequisite for any of those guys getting on the field. And it seems like it's, it's maybe like the first evaluation metric on the, on the rubric of deciding who's going to have a role in this offense. You have to sell out in that way if you want to do anything else. And to get everyone to buy into that is just really impressive. And, and when you have so much talent and you can say, okay, well, if you're not going to do it, this other guy is also talented, so he can do it, versus a team that really has to rely on one or two guys and maybe you can't you know, really hold someone to it and say, you're not going to play if you don't do this because that person's too valuable uh, with their skill set. But the way he has this, this set up, you know, almost everyone is, is replaceable at the skill positions and you can really enforce and, and mandate that. No, it's a good point. We asked Lincoln Riley, like you said, we're filming on Tuesday. I asked him last night a similar question, more in reference to Solomon Bird and like, oh, how did he take that uh, yeah. when he was third string to start the season? How did he take that? And he's like, well, with any of these guys, the proof's in the pudding, meaning that they see the guy that's above them producing at a high level. So they know if they buy into what we're saying and they're on the field, like we are being productive as a team that they will be able to eat as a result. And so offensively, it's much easier to convince a Mario Williams to block because he knows that if I block on this play, I'll get the home run shot on the next play versus in years past you might be trying to get guys to block and do like the things that don't go on the stat sheet. It is harder to convince a 19 year old of that when, okay, they block yet. They're not getting the stats on the back end. Yeah. So it's, 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 it all, you know, feeds itself in that, uh, Hey, do the little things and then you'll, uh, you'll get the touchdowns and all the, uh, the Twitter mentions, uh, after the fact. Yeah, it really speaks to the importance of having an infrastructure in the program that you can build upon. And when you have nothing to build upon, no foundation, it's hard to uh, construct anything. I wasn't going to make this a segment, but since you got into it in your breakdown of that play, 
I'm really just curious about what the process is for a quarterback on the read options. I don't, I don't know how often it was employed in your offenses. I know it's gotten more and more popular uh, in recent years. You can, call, you can call me out. You said you're not sure I was asked to do uh, a lot of zone read back in the day. <laughs> Put on, the, put on the film, whenever I would go in mop-up duty, we weren't able to throw the ball because we had to, like, run the clock out. And, hey, pocket, pocket passer number four was still uh, still trying to get loose with the uh, with the knee brace. Um, but, no, I, I think, you know, it was – I mean, I, I played college ball 13 to 17. I mean, zone read was definitely, I would say, a, a big part of, of, of spread schemes at that point. Obviously, I was not asked to do it as much as the next guy, but I would – you know, I would still do zone read, but instead of having me run it, they would put Mario Williams, for example, on a bubble screen, and, you know, I would throw it out there. And Enough to keep the defense honest. I think the biggest difference for me is, you know, it feels like now everyone's doing it. Like, literally Stanford is doing it at times versus when I played, Stanford was not doing that. And so that's a bigger picture topic and thought I have is, like, you know, when I was in, when I was playing, you had pro style offenses, you had spread offenses, you had air raid offenses, and it was kind of clear to see the differences. Now in college football, it feels like everyone is trying to do what Lincoln Riley's doing. Obviously, not everyone's successful, but everyone's trying to do this spread offense. Yeah, and it's like a melting pot of different schemes, all of which incorporate some aspect of zone read. And I'm almost more interested in it from the running back's perspective on just the timing and and, and what is kind of their key to know if they're holding on to that ball or if, or if it's being pulled. Like, what's kind of the just the thought process and what they have to read off of? They're not reading anything. So it's the whole – it's all the quarterbacks read, but it's, it's all feel. So just based off the – it's feel and tempo. So based off the tempo of their steps, like – they're, they're going to hold their line for an extra few steps to allow the quarterback to read that. And so we always use the term mesh, right? That mesh is the running back's job to carry out his track to a certain point. And he, his mindset is, hey, this is my running ball. Or, this, is, this is my ball. This is my ball. This is my ball. But it's also his job to be patient as well. And you can't, you can't just grab it. And so that mesh point is a feel thing. He's got to stay on his track long enough to allow that quarterback to uh, – to, to read it, and as long as that quarterback sticks the ball in there and it's in his belly and hasn't given it yet, which, once again, that's a feel thing. You can feel when a quarterback gets it or not. Then uh, he's got to ride that out. So it's a combination of quarterback riding out the mesh, running back staying on his track, being patient, and then just reps of knowing what that just feels like yeah. inside of a quarterback giving it or uh, pulling it. I, I phrased my question wrong. That's what I was getting at was just feeling if the ball was going to stay with you or not based on the quarterback's read, uh, I have to imagine that it's uh, it takes a lot of reps, like you said, and work to get that timing down. Let's get to Caleb, and we'll stick with what he did with his legs. And he was asked after the game if it was a point of emphasis to run more, and he laughed and said, definitely not a point of emphasis. He goes, I, I, I'm trying not to run, but it's an ability I have, and when things are open like that, you know, it, it really is quite a weapon because he can turn on the Jets pretty quickly. He also showed some willingness to be physical and fight for some extra yards. If you're Lincoln Riley, how much do you want him doing that? Because he took some shots, you know, on sacks. But, you're, you know, you're exposing yourself anytime you uh, you stay upright there. If I'm Lincoln Riley, I don't want him to do that at all <laughs> unless it's a tight, a tight game in the fourth quarter or, I guess, back into the third quarter. Um, it's just too important. Um, 
and it's funny, we asked, once again, a similar question last night to Lincoln Riley, and it was funny because we're sitting on the couch and Jalen Hurts was playing on in the background, um, and obviously he has exposure to Hurts, he has exposure to Kyler Murray that had a, a viral run in the NFL uh, this past Saturday or past Sunday, yep. um, and then Baker, and Baker's mobility is, oh, Caleb doesn't find me get offended by this, but Baker's probably the most comparable mobile-wise to Caleb. Caleb's probably more... Caleb's more mobile, but Caleb's not at the level of Kyler or Jalen. Uh, sure. Even those guys are different. But uh, yeah, if I'm Lincoln, I you know I don't want him lowering shoulders unless the game's on the line. But in terms of like play calls and whatnot, I, I I think the way that we've seen it is exactly how it should be. In that in the in the field right in between the thirty yard lines. I don't really need to call zone read quarterback stuff because he has so much other 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 plays you can get to. Like that's almost that's almost elementary school right there. If you're calling quarterback zone read, like they have so many other weapons they can get to. Save it for the goal line when the when the field condenses, and we all know that hey, at, at the goal line that's where spread offenses struggle a little bit more. Like big picture, because the field condenses, the windows condense and whatnot, and that's where I'm utilizing quarterback run and to protect your quarterback. Do the runs on the edge, right? Do the ones where he's able to able to bow out outside or able to get to the sideline quickly or things of that nature, rollout packages, things like that. The ones where, hey, we may have seen at the Jalen Hurts era of Oklahoma where he's having to off-tackle right, lower his shoulder. To me, that has – not that he can't do it, but that just – there's no need with how valuable Caleb Williams is. I heard that segment, and he had a great answer in talking about Hurts and saying, I just eventually realized that that guy was unbreakable and he was a little different, so he could take it. But – um, yeah, good points there. Like an NFL tight end, I think he, uh, that was, that's what he said. Caleb overall, I think this was the first game where maybe he wasn't, you know, close to flawless. And it's telling that we're at this point where we can critique and dissect a quarterback who accounted for four touchdowns with no turnovers and passed for 284 yards and, and say it wasn't his best game. But what overall was your assessment of Caleb? Uh, I know that Lincoln even mentioned uh, on your Trojans Live interview that he thought you know he held the ball too long sometimes. That was a factor in some of those sacks. There were some open receivers that I think he missed. But overall, how would you break down his play? Yeah, the sacks, it's funny because – I remember watching the TV copy, and I was, it's pretty obvious. Anytime a quarterback hangs on the ball that long and gets sacked, like, all right, that's on the quarterback. Uh, I mean, Caleb would told you, tell you that anyways. But I also walk away with, you know, you have to be so confident to even do that, right? Like to hang on the ball and to try to make a play and be in the pocket and hang around. And he made, he made it look like he was comfortable back there, even though he was moving around a little bit. So I almost don't mind that as much. I think it just shows how much confidence he's playing with. Um but I mean, yeah, completion percentage maybe isn't where it was in uh, in weeks past. But he's playing at a high level, man. And um, I don't know if I said this on the last pod, but two areas that stick out to me is or one going into the season, I wasn't sure where his arm strength was at, and I don't know if it's a byproduct of me just not having watched a ton of Oklahoma last year, or if it's just you know the angle of the TV copy or whatever it is. But his arm like visually looks stronger to me. It looks like there's more pop on that ball. Not night and day, but enough where I'm like, all right, yo, this is a this is an NFL dude. And then on that note, he's making some NFL throws, which it's hard to notice on the TV copy. I noticed it when I watched the All-22. Um, he's making really hard throws 
looked easy. Um, he, made, he had a whole shot against Stanford, which we talked about last week, and he had another whole shot, which is hitting a vertical route in between a corner and a safety. He had another one this game. And that's that's good. I mean, that's big time just because it's a big time throw. But to recognize it, to pull the trigger, to protect your receiver, all those things are NFL-level aspects that uh, – it's not like he's just out there playing point guard and just, you know, hitting the open guy and that guy's open, I'm going to throw to him. Throwing guys open and uh, he's playing really, really well. And once again, only a, he's only he's only a true sophomore. And he didn't even start every game last year. Like, there's more he can probably tap into that's, that I think we've seen through the first three games of this season. Yeah, and, and again, I, I tried to preface it right in the way to say that I, I'm not being critical at all. I've been thoroughly impressed. But the fact that there was this chatter on Twitter and message boards, uh, what's wrong with Caleb tonight? I mean, what's wrong is he's got four touchdowns and, and no turnovers all season still. And uh, he, he does just look like a much older player. Uh, he carries himself like an older person. He's just a very, very mature uh, – it feels like you're talking to a, to a seasoned pro when you talk to Caleb and, and also when you watch him. In a lot of ways, last topic on the offense is the protection. He took some some big hits there on, on a couple of those sacks. Let me ask you first, as a quarterback, how much does that throw you off rhythm when you get popped like that? Does it have a long lingering carryover to the rest of what you're doing, or is it easy to shake off and move on? It's funny. It totally depends. Uh, I was talking about this uh, in reference to the Cal Notre Dame game as well. And what I was referencing there because the Notre Dame quarterback was struggling and you could see that he was like visually playing nervous. And I was like, the, the best way to settle a quarterback down is to get hit, is to get popped and to kind of really embrace yourself in the game. And sometimes when, when quarterbacks start off shaky, it's like, oh, they got to get into the game. Well, how do you get into the game? You get your, you get to, you get popped in the, in, in, in the chin, so to speak. And so sometimes I think it kind of shock your system to, to keep you sharp and be like, oh, maybe I can't hold on the ball that long. Or maybe I was getting relaxed with my feet. I can't get relaxed back there. There's 300-pound defensive lineman coming after me. So sometimes it can be good. Other times, though, you know, if you're really getting worn out, getting worn out, another example, I watched the Utah-San Diego State game and poor San Diego State quarterbacks getting blitz all the time and getting hit a bunch, and you can see that he's rushing his progression, and as a result, he throws a pick on third down. So there's two sides to it. My gut says that, Caleb, you know, I don't mind getting popped a little bit because it keeps him on his toes. I felt like some of those sacks against Fresno State, like I said, is him playing super confident and thinking he might be able to do more than he might uh, he might be able to just in, 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 in the scope of the play where getting hit keeps you honest. Because really, I mean, if you talk about this USC team losing, what's the blueprint for that? It's playing outside the system. It's a team getting a couple turnovers easy. It's Caleb maybe trying to do too much and – Hey, it gives life to a team type of thing. Like, that's going to be the recipe should USC lose. So, I don't mind the, I don't mind the hits here or there. Yeah. A, a couple, though, were definitely a result of, of the pass blocking, pass protection on the left side. And uh, Cortland Ford didn't play. He, he went through early warm-ups. So, uh, you know, it looked like he was probably close to maybe being able to, but he didn't go. Bobby Haskins carried the bulk of the load. He had some struggles. And then he, of course, uh, got dinged up on his arm or shoulder, whatever it was, and, and had to come out. And, and Mason Murphy played, uh, I think it was eight snaps. He got beat for a sack. 
I, I think if there's any concern in the offense right now, it's obviously the left tackle. We talked to Lincoln Riley on Tuesday morning after practice, and he said that both Haskins and Ford uh, went through practice, and he expects them to to play Saturday, but he would not give us any hints as to whether he wants to get back to that equal timeshare at the position or or go one way or the other. What is your overall confidence level or concern level about the left tackle situation? Yeah, I would say the best way to describe that is I'm good with the left tackle situation. I would say, you know, the injuries, anytime you start talking about that and it's still September, that's a concern to me, but, you know, the fact that they're both back, um, I'm good with that. If you were talking to, hey, we're going to have to go with Mason Murphy long-term, that to me is where that's a concern to me. Um, not only pass game-wise, because I think you can scheme some things to get the ball out quicker and, you know, hide a little bit there. Once again, I'm well aware it's a left tackle position, most important position on the offensive line, but you've seen pass-friendly teams be able to do that in the past. It's the running game that's, you know, would also concern me uh, long-term, but I think it's a byproduct of, uh, you know, there's no other weakness on this on this offense, really. You can you can poke here or there, but the fact that this has come up in week three, it's easy to draw attention to, but I'm good with it. I'm good with it. I think through three games, those guys are playing solid, big picture. All right. Well, good deal. Actually, I do have two more notes offensively. I asked Riley on Tuesday about Relique Brown and kind of what his vision is for him the rest of the season, and – and he said that he expects him to have a, quote, significant role whenever he gets fully healthy. Obviously, he injured that ankle or foot. We assume it's an ankle. We don't really get specifics anymore. Uh, in week one, played eight snaps for Stanford the next week, but only one snap this past week in versus Fresno State. And Riley acknowledged that he just hasn't been full strength and uh, he's making strides. But once he gets back to full strength, we will, again, see him use the way he was used in that first game. So, don't forget Relief Brown at some point in the near future coming back to that. And then Gary Bryant Jr., the big news of Tuesday, is going to redshirt the rest of this season. And he was working with the scout team offense on Tuesday. He was not working on kick returns, so I would not expect him to play this week. He could play one more game and still redshirt, but it sounds like he's, he's not going to. I had got wind of this on Monday evening that he was – you know, frustrated with with his role in the offense. He has two catches this season after being the second leading receiver last year. And that that he was going to redshirt and that that probably meant that he was going to transfer uh, at the end of the season. With the new transfer portal rules, a player cannot enter the portal during the season. Um, also, though, uh, Bryant is set to graduate at the end of the semester, so he would want to finish that out anyway. But it sounds like all indications are that I got was that he was going to look to move on. And Riley at least confirmed that he is redshirting. So we'll see. I guess they have a few months to change his mind if they, they want to try. But I thought it was interesting on Monday on your Trojans Live segment that he Riley had a comment about you're not going to keep everybody anymore. It's just the way it is or something like that. At the time, I didn't think of it because I hadn't heard about the, the Bryant stuff at that point. But uh, – I'm sure that was probably in his mind as he was saying that. Yeah, it's interesting. And I was the one that asked that question, so I, I know exactly uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. But, you know, there's two sides to it. I think one, you know, a month ago I was excited for the potential of what Gary Bryant can do in this offense. But then two, I mean, we all saw we all saw the laundry list of uh, of receivers in that room and there's only one ball to go around and 
as the season goes on, the roles get more solidified, the depth chart and rolling guys in there gets less and less and um, doesn't come as a complete shock. It's unfortunate for Gary Bryant, especially because I know over the past few years, we've, we've spent a lot of time uh, highlighting him. And I think he's a great player. I'm sure he's going to be at the top of the list of any transfer portal get, but uh, it shows how deep this, uh, this receiver room is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't lament it because it's a byproduct of having so much talent. And that's always going to be the case, I think, for this offense with Riley here. I mean, don't think for a second that this offseason, if if there's another Jordan Addison who enters the portal, that they're not going to be all over him trying to get him here. Um, they will be aggressive in trying to bring in any top talent that is in that portal. So it's not even about just the guys who are clearly returning next year. It's about who else is going to be coming in. You're also bringing in uh, Zachariah Branch, your, um, Akai Lemon, Jacoby Lane, some talent. So if, if you're not in position for a major role now, there's absolutely nothing to bank on that says you will be later. It could be an even worse situation. Who knows? I, I agree with you that Gary's very talented. He was like a top 60 or 70 national recruit when he came out. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he goes somewhere where he can be more of a focal point and puts up a monster season. I mean, he's easily capable of, of a 1,000-yard-plus season. Very talented guy, but yeah, you, you, and, uh, and, and right, he uh, three, he's graduated this December. That's getting his degree done in three years, right? Yep. Um, yep. Six semesters. Good on him for taking care of business. Don't sleep on that. That's not easy to do. Great job, Gary Bryant. Absolutely. So, again, uh, no official word that he's transferring, but every indication I've gotten is that's. Uh, obviously, the reason why he would redshirt the rest of the season, and that is the plan for now. We will see what happens whenever the portal opens back up. Okay, that's enough offense. Let's get some quick defensive talk, and I really want to break down the matchup with Oregon State. It's a huge game this week. But defensively, so while there's still much to pick apart about the defense, giving up big chunk plays, struggling against the run, uh, as Alex Grinch said, just not being in gaps, the fact remains they are tied for third nationally in takeaways among teams who have played three games with 10, and they are tied for second in the country in sacks at 4.67 per game, 14 sacks through three games. So like I said at the top of the show, they have an identity. And after the game Saturday, Shane Lee even came out and said it. It is what we, it's what we are. We're a bend but don't break defense. I'm not sure that that is Alex Grinch's vision for this defense, but they have an identity. I wanted to ask you, though, about the the run defense and whether you think it can be fixed over the course of this season. It's obviously been an endemic problem for years here, and even though they brought in new personnel, it, just, it seems like it's, it's tough to uh, turn the t- Titanic around a little bit. They gave up runs of 27, 24, and 32 on Saturday and pass plays of 26 and 39. So uh, five really big chunk plays there, and Alex Grinch, Again, attributed mostly to just missed assignments, missed missed gaps. What do you? What's your hope for where that can get to the rest of the year? My hope is that you can get it shored up, but I think you can for for a few reasons. One, you know, if, if guys are playing, like if the issue is guys are out of gaps, you know, that's a better concern to me at this point than oh, we don't have the talents up front, front, or we don't even know where we're going in this situation. Like that's a different narrative. To me, if guys are getting lined up wrong or not filling their gaps right, that will improve as the season goes on because you get more familiarity with the scheme and more familiarity with your role and the players around you. So that's where 
I'm more optimistic there. I also think, you know, if you're Alex Grinch, maybe there's a world where over the next few weeks you realize, oh, this is something that we do really well and we don't mess up in this scheme. Or, hey, do I need to condense my playbook, my defensive playbook, like more so then we only have these calls so then guys, we're making sure that guys are lining up. And you have the luxury of doing that because this defense doesn't need to be perfect. So often when you see deep, uh, defenders getting out of gaps, it's because they're trying to play hero ball. They're trying to get a sack. They get washed away and a running back cuts underneath them. They're trying to, you know, do something spectacular and the offense is able to, to take advantage of that when they get out of their gap. If you're just telling this defense line in the front seven, like, hey, guys, we're going to have an offense that scores 40 points a game. Just line up in your gap. Don't play hero ball. Just trust just trust what the defense is doing. And if that's the mentality, I think you can get guys, to our earlier point, to buy in a little bit more. So I'm optimistic you can get it shirt up. Um, I will say with an active defense like this, where you are doing some movement things, like that is the downside, right, of you, you're not always going to be – or it's harder to be perfectly aligned in your gap. Funny enough, Oregon State is the exact opposite. Oregon State is very kind of vanilla with their lineup and schemes for that very reason of that, hey, we might get beat talent-wise, but we are not going to get beat because we don't have a, a defender in a gap type of mentality. So it's just the trade-offs of defensive schemes, but I think you can, I think you can figure it out. Well, if you look at that trade-off, taking that approach and going for it, their sacks came at like opportune times every time. Obviously, Solomon Bird's sack fumble and recovery at the start of the third quarter when it was still an 11-point game and, and Fresno State had the ball and was at midfield was the game-changer. Uh, Tooley's uh, sacks both came at huge moments in the game. So, you know, I, I don't know if you want to take the foot off the gas on, on being aggressive like that because it's paid off in, in, key, in key times. I thought Alex Grinch's best comment after the game, and it started with Lincoln Riley highlighting the, the, the goal line stand by the by the backups at the very end in the final minute to keep uh, Fresno State out of the end zone. Uh, third down and fourth down from the one-yard line stopped them both times. And he, he, Riley said it was his favorite moment of the game because it, it just represented a lot to him about you know finishing strong and this and that. What it represented for Alex Grinch, though, was that he goes, we're a single-gap defense. And what happened on that se- series? The guys filled their gaps – did their responsibility, did their 111th responsibility, and all of a sudden Fresno State couldn't get a yard. He goes, there's no reason we couldn't have that exact same approach from the 20-yard line or the 40-yard line or with 80 yards of field behind us. He goes, it's a decision they made in that moment that we need to make in every moment. So that's the way he looks at it and thought that that sequence was uh, encapsulated what he wants out of the defense at large, not just in goal line situations. I like it. That's the mentality you have. Play as uh, play as one. I like the line of uh, do one eleventh. Do your one eleventh job. I really enjoy talking to Grinch. I think he's really intelligent. I think it's that there's a reason why he's getting mentioned on all these coaching hot boards as jobs open up. I, I think he definitely will be a head coach at some point in the future. If you're a USC fan, maybe you're not totally bought in on him yet, but I think you would hope that he's here for more than a year and something established here but I do think he has a bright future in that regard um, lastly on defense and then we'll turn it over to the game preview the Solomon Bird story is one of the, the great stories so far this season uh, we talked last week with Adam Grossbar of the OC Register about the Max Williams story the Solomon Bird story is this guy transferred from Wyoming where he was putting up really good numbers 
had a breakout redshirt freshman season in 2019, skipped the 2020 season because he was already married and his wife was considered high risk for COVID and they, you know, he had to protect his family first. Comes back last year, puts up good numbers in eight games and transfers here. And I'll tell you, because I talked to him the day he announced his transfer, this is a confident guy. This is a guy who did not come here intimidated by the stage or by playing at USC. He, he told me, he goes, I want to prove that I'm the best defensive lineman in the country. I really want to show that. He's co-third string defensive end with Solomon Talia Pupu behind Thule and Nick Figueroa. I just and I asked him the question after the game. What was your mentality at that point? And he said, "I'll be honest. It was it was hard because I was I was a, a big player at Wyoming. I, I was an, I was a name. People knew who I was. And now he's third string entering the season. But flash forward a week later, and Romelo Height leaves the Stanford game very early, and it's it's Solomon Burr that rush in, taking the bulk of those snaps and and having having two sacks that game." having a sack uh, this past game with the sack fumble, which was really the play of the game. And all of a sudden, he's not only a starter, but he's one of the most impactful defensive players. And the coaches are just giddy about this story because it reflects everything they want to sell to their team is that, like, it's a long season. We don't make decisions for the season. We make decisions for the moment. It's it's what you do each week that determines where you're going to be. And – Riley has told the story a couple times about Hollywood Brown in Oklahoma being on the scout team to open the year and not even really having a role in offense until a handful of games in and still having like a thousand yard season once he finally broke through. He wants every player to see that opportunity is there for them, is, is in their control as much as anything else. And the Solomon Bird story is one they point to with that. And it's a, it's a good story. And it's, I know you guys talked to Bird on Trojans Live. What was your takeaway and get to know him a little bit. Yeah, I think you, you said it perfectly, Ryan. Um, she tells me for him, man, that's super impressive. I mean, I was a, a transfer myself, and I can't imagine, you know, picking up, moving your life, in his case, his wife and son as well, picking up, he probably had all the options in the world, defensive lines, a premium in the transfer portal, goes to USC, he's third string. Not only is he third string, he's in behind another transfer and the former number one uh, recruit in the country. I know you mentioned the Nick Figueroa thing, but at least at the Russian position, you got Corey Foreman as, as well. So to not complain, to dig in, to trust the process, that whole mentality, I mean, it's a testament to the kind of dude he is, and it's awesome to see that uh, things are reaping the benefits. And I can't blame the coaches for loving up the story because that's what you want to hear, right? You, you, it's a melting pot of high school recruits, transfer porters, portal guys, carryover dudes, one of the hardest things is going to get is going to be to get every single guy to buy in the fact that a guy who you know was mr mr everything defensively for wyoming to then come back and still buy in when he doesn't get his way like that is huge as a uh, program culture um like you know uh cornerstone piece that uh maybe wasn't there in years past yeah it's, it's in the same category as what we were talking about with the, the buy-in for the blocking it's just that we're starting to see some very clear pillars of this program that Riley wants it to be built upon starting to show up in, in different ways. And uh, I enjoyed his, his comment to you all on Monday night about uh, about having a one-and-a-half-year-old 
son at home and he said my life is really really real <laughs> because I, I go home I go home and have responsibilities I don't go home and play video games so you talk about that. Yeah. He, he called me out too he, I was like yeah, and I worried my question poorly but I was like hey I'm, I'm guilty of it too but uh, when you hear the narrative that hey this USC team is great but like not sure about the defensive line like what are your thoughts or motivations and he looks at me like dead in the eye like I've never heard that, and I was like, "All right, good, good on you, good on you for not uh, not turning on podcasts or any TV shows." And uh, major major props for sticking up for your gang. It, it's so true that that really is him. I talked to him early in camp, and I said, "You know, what's it like competing with all this talent?" And and he was working at DN and Russian Russian initially, and I, I said, "You know, with Romello Height and Corey Foreman, five star guy," and and he just looked at me like. Like, I don't understand why you would ask me that. I'm, I don't care about anyone else. I'm here to, to, to win this job. Uh, that's so true. That's exactly how he looked at me last, last night. But get on him. Okay, let's get to Oregon State and break this game down. 3-0 versus 3-0. We're heading up to Corvallis, Oregon. My second trip to Corvallis. I loved it. I thought it was a lovely town. Very charming. We can uh, Oregon State, the Beavers, have beaten Boise State 34-17. Fresno State, th- I wrote that score down, uh, 35-32, I think it was, in the close game. And then rolled over Montana State, an FCS opponent this past week, 68-28. Montana State was the FCS national runner-up last year, so not just any FCS program. And they won by 40 points. Max, let's start with the offense, and obviously a, a veteran quarterback and and some other pieces. What give us the breakdown of the Beavers on offense? The yeah, offense for the quarterback Chance Nolan. Uh, big picture, his coming out party was the USC game last year. Yep. Um, Oregon State fans and Pac-12 fans are kind of waiting for him to, you know, get out of the game manager role. He still has a little bit of that in the. I always hate that term, but in the connotation of how people think about the quarterback position, still has a little bit of that. Don't get me wrong, but he's playing really well. I mean, Oregon State put up 68 points last week. I mean, the idea that they would have done that two years ago would have been unfathomable. And a big reason why they're doing that is Chance Nolan. He's playing to, uh, at, at, a, at a high confidence level. Uh, big note for SC fans, their tight end, Luke Musgrave, who, in my opinion, is the has the highest NFL ceiling of the tight ends. Uh, Utah fans might have something to say about that. But he is out for this game. He was their go-to playmaker in week one and week two. Had the big catch down the sideline in the Fresno State game that led to that uh, last-second victory. Uh, but he's out in this game. Me, for me, going into the season, the question I had for about Oregon State was their receivers. Like, I knew they had the tight ends. I knew they had the run game. But where are they at receiver-wise? And they have more small, speedy guys than bigger physical guys. Uh, Treshawn Harrison is probably the, the go-to guy. He's a little bit bigger. But Anthony Gould, Silas Bolden, and Tyjon Lindsey, um, SC fans might remember that name. He was a, a local recruit. Uh, all those guys are short, speedy slot guys. So, you know, less of a Stanford physical run or physical matchup, more of a, they're going to try to get you get you in space a little bit. But this is a solid Oregon State team. To me, it's the, the, the rushing attack. This will be the best rushing attack, in my opinion, by far, that USC has seen this year. And they're running back. B.J. Baylor graduated. He was top of the conference last year. Jonathan Smith just reloads. Deshaun Fenwick is their starter. He's 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 solid. He, he he's a he's a really good conference back. And then they're really excited about their true freshman they have backing him up, uh, Damian Martinez as well. So it is a very solid offense. 
that uh, certainly can put points on the board, and you don't look at the offense with any glaring weaknesses, so to speak. So, obviously, it, stopping the run is is the key focal point for USC this week, and a big challenge. One hundred percent, staying in your gaps. I think that, that that's the, that's the key. Like if this whole not staying in your gaps thing happens, I think you know Oregon State will make you pay run game and hey if our concern before the season was interior defensive line like this is a game where that will be tested so got to buck up your chin strap all right and on the other side of the ball the beavers defense what is what is their best hope for slowing down this uh, machine that Riley has run going their best hope and keyword is hope is uh they've upgraded uh in the secondary last year their secondary was was bottom of the conference. Um, some of those familiar faces, they made a change at defensive coordinator towards the end of the season. New defensive coordinator Trent Bray. I actually called his first game when he got the uh, when he got the knob in November of last year. And it's a much more, um, I'll call it active defense. They can get you get get, uh, get after you on third down. But uh, but back to their secondary. That's a veteran group. Um, their captain Jaden Grant is a safety. They really like him. Uh, they have Rajon, what's his last name? Uh, Rajon Wright, yep. Uh, he was on a Netflix TV show for anyone that remembers that. But he's a, he's a good corner, and I'm sure that they'll have him travel with uh, with uh, with Addison and, and do what they can there. But from a Oregon State lens, you're saying, oh, our, 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 our secondary upgraded, maybe we got a shot there, but don't get me wrong. They're going to have their hands absolutely full. Something to note as well, it's a four-down defensive structure which is a little bit unique in this age of, uh, of college football where you see a lot of defenses mix up the fronts, do a little three down, you know, get more linebackers on the field type of thing. By and large, this is an Oregon State defense that's going to line up pretty vanilla and four down defense alignment. Not to say they can't heat things up, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a defense that kind of sticks, sticks to what they do type of thing. I'm guessing the answer to this is that USC is just going to do what it does. But if you're Lincoln Riley, is there anything specifically you're looking to exploit in this matchup? Nothing specifically. I know it's kind of a cop-out answer, but, I mean, I don't look at it as, oh, my gosh, this Oregon State team has this absolutely glaring weakness. I think athletically across the board, they cannot hang with, uh, with USC. And so maybe to that point, maybe this is a Mario Williams game where you're forcing these Oregon State linebackers to play out in space. If you'd like to think that, hey, Oregon State's got some bigger physical corners, once again, I'm not saying they can, you know, stand with Jordan Addison, but I think the drop-off of the linebacker covering Mario Williams, that is more noticeable to me, where force these guys to cover in space, do a little bit of a less-is-more approach, and uh, historically in this matchup, that is, the, the, historically in this matchup, it's USC's more athletic than Oregon State, Oregon State at times when they have beaten SC is more physical than SC. That I'm sure is the, the, the tug of war right there of, uh, of this matchup. Well, for the USC players who were here last year, that was obviously a forgettable game for the Trojans, but one that a couple of guys have wanted to relive this week and uh, on their own, both, uh, both Thule and Raylan Goforth told us that they have watched that game at least once this week. Raylan was going to watch it a second time, and, and not even in a full team setting, just just at home, just wanting to kind of re- remind themselves of where things went off track last year and keep that in mind. Uh, well, with that said, before we get to the prediction, just you know their program overall, their trajectory 
Jonathan Smith, where do you rank him in the Pac-12 hierarchy of coaches? Oh, I like that question. Let me see here. I'll be talking out loud a little bit. I think Lincoln Riley is one. I think, well, it's yeah, Lincoln Riley one, Kyle Whittingham two. I'll go Jonathan Smith. Um, I'll go Jonathan Smith at number four. I I am drinking the Kalen DeBoer Kool-Aid yeah. up at Washington. So I'll put him at number three and Jonathan Smith at number four. I mean, what he's done at Oregon State, you talk about the blueprint for building a program. I mean, we all know Oregon State is nowhere near a blue blood program. But the fact over the course of four or five years, you just slowly get better. You slowly build and develop and grow guys and recruit guys that are good for your culture and utilize the transfer portal where, where needed, which they've done a bunch. And credit, credit what he's able to do. Good stuff. Well, as always, we end with a prediction. Uh, I'll give you mine first this time. I'm going to go USC 42 to 34. I think they have a real challenge on their hands this week, uh, mainly for just the reasons we talked about with, with the defense and that Oregon State rushing attack. I think this is going to be a, the tensest game we've had yet by far, and that it could be very interesting late into the fourth quarter. But ultimately, I still think that there's just too much firepower on the Trojan side to not come out with a W. Max, your prediction? I'll go 41-35 USC. I, uh, I also think, you know, before the season, if you look at this matchup, this is one where, hey, upsets happen every single season. And this feels like it has the recipe to potentially do that. And you have a team that's playing with tons of confidence, coming here three 0 and matchup-wise for USC. The Oregon State run game against the USC defense front seven, that test to me um, is noteworthy. Literally, if you go back to last game, Oregon State played Montana State, and there was like three minutes left in the second quarter, and there had only been like five drives in the game. Um, and so I think the blueprint is to shorten that game, condense it down. As I said that out loud, I think guys are saying, Maxwell, then how are you getting to 35 and 41 points. I think you could heat up in the second half, but to me, that's the blueprint of keep Caleb Williams off the field if you're Oregon State, get the rushing game involved. That's how they keep it close, but ultimately too much firepower for SC. Good stuff. I think uh, Trojans fans will feel a little more emboldened about this team if they get over this challenge convincingly or even just safely get, get past this Oregon State team and um, it not be a trap game. And I think they'll really start to buy into the potential of what the season could be. Uh, it'll be a telling one. Uh, great conversation. Love having you on and excellent analysis today. Thank you, Max. It was fun. Enjoy Saturday and we'll be back next week. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff from Max Brown. Enjoyed that show a lot. I think that was one of our better analysis-driven shows, really leaning on Max's insight and perspective heavily. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I am on my way to Corvallis. Well, you know, Portland for the next two days, but in Corvallis eventually for the game Saturday, my second trip ever to Corvallis. Uh, I seem to be much higher on it as a college town than... Most people, I find it to be a charming charming town and a great game day setup. I've been looking forward to this trip since the season started, and I would imagine the Trojans are looking forward to making a statement and showing that uh, they can do what they've been doing against a little higher class of team, a 3-0 
Pac-12 team that's played some good football this year. So we will have full coverage from Corvallis, as we always do, and be back on the podcast next week with Max Brown breaking down this game and looking ahead to the next. If you are not subscribed to Trojansports.com, give us a chance. Join us. Join our community. Get on the board. We had our best in-game discussion that I can recall last week. Uh, just really active and uh, engaging conversation during the game. It's fun to be on there during the game, especially for a road game when you're not going to be in the stadium most likely. Break your laptop out or your phone. Get on our Trojan Talk board and conversate with us during the game. I post a bunch of pregame stuff on there, videos from the field, obviously news or notes, updates on who's in uniform, who's not, who's healthy, etc. But then we just have a good conversation all game long. Get access to that. Get access to all of our premium content. I will be trying to go out Friday night to see the new 2024 tight end commit, Joey Olson, who is uh, from Oswego, Oregon. Oswego Park? Oswego. Oswego. As we go. As we go to Oregon, we will try and see Joey Olson on Friday. Uh, his team is playing in Portland. And hope to have some good video and interview from that for you because we always have an eye on recruiting at all times, even though it's a little bit slower right now. This is kind of that lull before the final surge comes at the end of the fall. But we are covering recruiting. We are covering the team every day, every night, consistently, thoroughly, in-depth, and hopefully with some unique content that you can't find anywhere else. Like we let our subscribers know on Monday evening that Gary Bryant was hindering the redshirt zone and likely the transfer portal from there. We were the first ones, I think, to put that anywhere. So if you were on our board, you saw that before anyone else did. But, um, yeah, join us at trojansports.com and keep listening to the podcast, and we will see you next week. Looking forward to it, as always. Thanks.